good morning once again, church family. Give y'all just a few moments to get back to your seats. Um, we're going to transition um, to a time in our service where we, we normally do announcements, and that is what these are going to be as well. Uh, however, I like to do them more in uh, the form of just prayer requests. And we do a prayer focus every week, and so this week uh, we're going to pray for all of our announcements or requests, if you will. Um, and I want to start with kind of big news that uh, Lynn and Terry both presented along with the pastor search team last week, that they have identified a pastor uh, that they feel is the person that God has for Arlington Baptist Church, uh, that they have presented to us uh, as a body to vote on, uh, which will take place on April 2nd. Um, they will be here on April 1st for a fellowship time, which will be in Fellowship Hall uh, time to be announced at a future date. Um, but just, a, just an informal Q&A on that Saturday and on that Sunday, he will come and preach, uh, after which there will be a church vote. And upon a yes vote, he will then be uh, the new pastor. He won't necessarily be here immediately after that, but um, that will be who God has called for, or who God has called to be the new pastor here on the Baptist Church. So we are super excited um, for that. And we want to even just now in these moments ahead be praying for him and his uh, family. Um, it's, his name is Caleb. His wife's name is Casey. Uh, so we're going to pray for them. Uh, we want to pray for our church, the continued discernment, not only of our pastor search team, uh, over them and over our whole body, um, but just for the, 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 the outreach of people um, whose lives hinge on, uh, in indirect or direct ways, on this discerning decision uh, of our church. And so we're going to uh, take a moment to pray for him. I'll uh, we'll add that to our prayer requests. Um, also, on the exciting front, uh, we have, uh, we've had, a, I think we mentioned it last week, um, we've had several uh, new babies uh, join our church recently. Uh, baby Layton is making her first attendance uh, day in our service this morning. Uh, so we can give a little soft golf clap for, for her. Uh, I don't want to wake her up. Um, and then uh, baby Haven, which is the Anderson's new baby, I believe just went home yesterday. Um, she was in the NICU. We prayed for her last week. And so we're super excited for them as well. And just what a joy for our church to be growing in that capacity. Um, side announcement, if you're interested in uh, volunteering with child care or babies, um, please let us know. There is a place for you as we are growing in that area. Um, so what an awesome, exciting joy. We'll definitely be praying for that. Um, also want to pray for um, uh, Second Saturday. It is our outreach that is this upcoming Saturday. We've been announcing it for so long now, but this upcoming Saturday will be it, assuming there's no rain delay, a rain out like there was last time. And so again, the announcements are just uh, outside the door there. We'd love for you to be a part of it and involved. There are infinitely many ways that you can serve. So don't think that you have to be, you know, extroverted or outspoken. There's lots of service roles for you to come and help be a part of that. Um, but this is the last week to sign up. And so please make sure you do that if you're interested. Um, and again, this goes so far beyond us passing out hot dogs and waters and welcoming people, um, but goes literally to the ends of the earth. Many of these players who are refugees from nations around the world have come to know Christ, many of whom upon coming to know Christ have then had desires and have actually gone back to their homeland um, to share faith in places that you and I would not have the ability to reach directly on our own. And so 
Um, our partnering goes so far beyond one day and so far beyond the community of Jacksonville. And so uh, we just want to pray boldly for that this morning as well. Um, next announcement I want to make is uh, just for our Parsons uh, high school students and many of our uh, members here, they're on a trip, I believe it's to Washington, D.C., and they will be back on tomorrow. And so we'll just pray for safe travels for them, but that's why many of them are not here this morning. Uh, I believe it's for 10th, 11th, 12th graders, so we'll add them to our prayer list as well. Um, and then lastly, I want to pray. Uh, Parsons had a, uh, one of their teachers passed away last week, and her name is Miss Vales. And um, for those of you in here at Parsons, teachers are associated with Miss Vales. She is an amazing uh, woman, and she has been battling with all kinds of different health issues for, I think, a couple years now. And um, God has finally called her home, and um, and we are tremendously joyful for her to be with Christ um, without any pain, no more tears, no more suffering. Um, but I know the, the school parsons, the students, uh, they definitely need our prayers, um, just as they mourn uh, her loss and her family as well. And so uh, we had a lot of exciting announcements, uh, a lot of exciting things to pray for, but um, also just a reminder that we are desperately in need of God's strength and peace and joy in circumstances where we don't feel like it. And so we're going to pray just for all that this morning. I know that was a lot, um, but all those positive joys as well as those ways in which we're reminded of our need for Jesus as well. And so if you would, let's just take a couple moments to pray, and then we'll uh, get into God's Word together. Um, Lord, we love you. And God, we just thank you for um, all that you're doing in the life of our church family. Um, God, we know that uh, we are so imperfect, um, but even in our imperfection, we are able to recognize the good things that you are doing. And God, I thank you. We thank you um, for identifying a pastor to come and, and lead us um, as, a, as a church that um, needs a pastor. And so, God, I pray for Caleb. I pray for Casey. I pray for their family in this uh, season of just discernment and, and, and just in all sorts of things that, that go along with this decision. I pray continually for our search team and for every member of this church as well have an opportunity to meet them and welcome them um, and discern um, whether or not they're the right person, uh, whether they're the right family for, um, for, for this particular role. And so, God, we entrust you um, just with these decisions. Um, God, we also just thank you for um, the new babies uh, that you have brought into this world through the people here at AVC, uh, for Layton, for Haven, um, and God, just pray that you would continue to grow them um, and, and their parents in you so that they might be brought up in your word and, and grounded in a relationship with you, even from a very young age. So we just pray uh, for them. We also lift up um, the All Nations Soccer League and just our partnership this upcoming weekend. God, that you'd give us an opportunity to, to serve in a meaningful way, not just to pat ourselves on the back, but to actually um, impact a people who, most of whom don't know you. And so, God, we pray for softened hearts that this weekend we would see lost souls come to faith in you and that we would see um, just, just a ripple effect of that to surrounding nations around the world um, because you are that good and that powerful that you could use something as simple as a serve day to impact the nations. Um, God, we also just lift up um, just the Parsons students um, as they're on their trip, pray for safe travels, um, as well as just for the loss that they have endured with losing Miss Vales. Um, but God, we know that she is 
um, just in, in total joy in your presence in this moment. And I pray that for her family, I pray that for the, the teachers, administrators, and, and students of Parsons, that even in the hurt and, and the pain of losing someone who is just a tremendous uh, lady and representation of who you are, um, that our eyes would maintain on the, the truth and the reality of where she is and the joy that that is our goal as well, um, to run uh, the race of life well as if to win the prize, which is eternity with you. And so, God, we just lift up all these requests. I know that you are good and sovereign and you will all things as you would. And, um, and for all unspoken requests among all the people who are here today, God, we just lift it all to you, the praises, the the, the challenges, the struggles, the, the, the ways in which we need to depend on you, um, all of it, God, we, we lay at your feet and pray that your will would be done. And so as we transition this time and service where we approach your word, um, God, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear it and that it would all be for the sake of knowing you and making you known. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are... Um, going to be transitioning to, as I said, the time of service where we go to God's Word. And I've been reiterating it for several weeks now, but we are looking at um, the Bible. And we've been, that's what the church does, right? We look at the Bible and we talked for several weeks to start the year about what the Bible is. And, and now over the last, uh, I guess this week five, we've been answering questions that you all have had and other common questions that Christians often have either about Christianity, about life, about the Bible, and just looking at what the Bible says. And so we've um, asked questions about spiritual gifts. We've asked questions about why bad things happen to good people. We've looked at specific passages like John 5, verses 14 through 17. Um, We talked last week about faith and works um, and and why that's an important question and, um, and, 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 and the implications it has for our life. And then today, uh, we are going to be looking at um, the end times. Today we're going to be talking about the end times. And uh, if you're wondering why we're preaching it today, first of all, it was the most commonly asked question. Of all the questions we got, uh, about 40% of them in some way were questions about the end times, the second coming, uh, the tribulation, the thousand year reign. And if you don't know what some of those things are, we're going to talk about them shortly. Um, and so this is the most frequently asked question among our particular body of believers here. And so we're going to look at it and dive in, um, but I will just throw out a few caveats and disclaimers before we do. Starting with, the reason why this is almost the last thing we're preaching on is because I myself have needed to take great time to study this particular topic. And do not consider myself in any way an expert on the end times um, theology or, or doctrine. Um, and so what we're going to do is look at it a little bit more broad scale this morning, and, um, and I'll explain kind of why in a moment. Um, but the other kind of disclaimer I want to give, or caveat I want to give, is we talk about something like this, as we talk about something like the end times, which for most Christians can either be confusing or something they've not really thought much about, or... Um, you know, or it can cause divisions among believers who believe particular things about different elements of the end times. Um, we've got to be careful that we're not allowing it to cause unhealthy division. And so what I want to do is kind of um, give the disclaimer of, of, of showing the place that it should have um, in our 
personal theology and our personal um, understanding of God's word. And so when we approach God's word, there you could call like you call it like three levels or three buckets where you can kind of put all different doctrinal theological beliefs, right? Um, the first one, the first bucket is the most important bucket. It would be what is uh, significant to salvation specifically, meaning that if you don't believe these core things, then you're not saved. You're not a Christian, right? So that would be um, about who Jesus is, right? His life, death, and resurrection, right? It's, it's him is the only way to salvation. It would also be the the total and complete inerrancy and truthfulness of Scripture, right? If you don't believe those things, right, then it means that you're not a Christian, right? So the first bucket things, it's important that we divide on those things, right? Because we can't allow someone to call themselves a Christian if they don't believe things that are essential to the Christian faith. Um, The second bucket issues would be things, for example, uh, like baptism, um, where there's definitely different schools of thought. It doesn't it doesn't change whether or not you're saved. There are some, for example, who believe that you can be baptized as an infant. There are others who believe you're baptized upon conversion. Um, although I firmly believe that the Bible teaches you're baptized upon conversion, we would not call someone who, do, who does infant baptisms a non-Christian. Right? But because that's such an essential practice to local church, it's not a reason to divide in terms of Christian or non-Christian, but it is a reason to divide in terms of local church. right? Because you, you would it affects the way you practice your day-to-day um, church functions, right? Or how often you partake in Lord's Supper, right? There's different things uh, that would fall into kind of that second bucket of category. And so that's sometimes where different denominations form. That's where, again, different particular local bodies of believers form. Um, so there, it's okay for healthy division. Again, not on the Christian, unchristian, or non-Christian level, um, but on just the functionality of the local church level. And then the third bucket um, of, again, doctrinal theology, you could say, uh, would be more things like what we're going to talk about today, um, which are things that um, not only do they not divide us in terms of are we a Christian or not, but they're also not significant enough in terms of the functionality of the church that they even ought to divide us among Christians, meaning we could all have various different beliefs in here about this particular topic, and it shouldn't divide us or, or, or separate us as a unified, cohesive church body here at Arlington Baptist Church. Now, I say that not to say that it doesn't matter what you believe, right? We should have strong convictions about what we believe. Uh, it just means that even if your strong conviction is different than my strong conviction um, on particular topics like the end times, um, then it doesn't make us want to leave church. It doesn't make us want to not associate with one another or, 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 or again, do church separately. Right? And so that's the things that we're going to be talking about today fall into that third bucket category. And that doesn't make them any less important uh, because all of God's Word is equally breathed. Right? All of God's Word is equally youthful, useful for teaching, uh, rebuking, uh, correction, and encouragement. And so we want to treat it as such. However as we go through some of this, as we'll read in the book of Revelation primarily, um, it's not always as clear, uh, thus leading to lots of different schools of thoughts among Christians. Uh, Which leads me into my last caveat, or last disclaimer, uh, which is this. Um, When we get into topics like this, and I am probably more guilty than most in here, it is really easy to become so knowledge-focused 
that we forget the, the practice part of Scripture. Um, and there are some things in Scripture that are, very, that are much more obvious in how you practice them. For example, if you're um, doing a deep dive into um, the, the theology of tithing, right? The, the na- tithing is a practical thing that you do. So if you're studying tithing, it's very obvious that you should then tithe, be tithing, even if you think differently than other people think about it, right? It's got natural, practical implications to it. Topics like what we're going to talk about today definitely have practical implications to them. However, they're not necessarily as obvious. And so if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is become so knowledge hungry that we'll seek more and more knowledge about all the different schools of thought. And is it the, you know, is a thousand, is, you know, I don't even want to get into all the different, different things that people believe because there's just so many. Um, but we've got to be careful that, that we're not seeking knowledge more so than we're seeking to practice. And so they have to go hand in hand. Because for some people, uh, for, for example, let me put it this way. Um, if you are a person, and I'm not necessarily saying you specifically, but if a person were to uh, do a deep study on uh, evangelism at the corporate level, yet they don't personally evangelize, it's probably not a knowledge that they're even necessarily ready for. Uh, meaning that our, our practice, our, uh, the way we apply it to our life, and the way we seek knowledge kind of go hand in hand. And so I say that to say that we've got to make sure that we're not seeking knowledge to a greater degree than we are practicing it um, daily in our life currently. So what I'm going to do is we walk through these different, um, as we walk through today's message, I want to approach it kind of with those caveats in mind. But I want to look at the end times in three parts. Uh, The first of which being the second coming, the second coming of Christ. Secondly, the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. And then thirdly, the final judgment. And in an effort to maintain practice with this knowledge that may be brand new to some of you, again, a lot of it was brand new to me uh, in the preparation for today, Um, But in an effort to maintain practice with this newfound knowledge, we're going to keep things simple and make sure to include at least one practical application for each point made today. Um, And so we're going to kind of look at it broadly, um, but in those three parts. The second coming, the events surrounding the second coming, and then lastly, the final judgment. So let's start with the second coming. Um, the first point in regards to the second coming is that Jesus is coming back. That's what we mean when we say second coming. And I've got several different verses that make this just super clear. John 14, 3, um, Jesus says, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am you may be also. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you have seen him going into heaven. Hebrews 9, verse 28. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so the first thing we know about the end times is, well, in regards to the second coming, is that Jesus is coming a second time. A core belief of Christians is that Jesus 
is the Son of God. He came into this world. He died on the cross to save us from our sins, um, bearing the, the consequence of our sin on our behalf, then raising from the grave three days later, defeating death, uh, to then later ascend into heaven, giving us a hope for eternal life in Him. And what these verses are telling us is that, yes, Jesus has come, but Jesus is also coming a second time. And the second time will ultimately be to enact final judgment, which we're going to talk about as we end today. Um, but we must first know that he is coming back in the first place. And we think about that thought, that Jesus, who for, for all of us who have not actually seen him in his bodily form here on earth face to face, um, as he has already ascended thousands of years ago, um, that he is coming back to be on this earth again. Um, and you and I may or may not be there when it happens. And so the practical application that that leaves us with is that we ought to be, we ought to, rather, longingly await his return. And the reason is, as Christians, um, if we are Christians and if we know this Jesus who has already come once, we know why he's already come once, which is to, to give hope for eternal life. And if we have if we are Christians and we've accepted that truth, then we know that his second coming is, is not just a, a, a day of, of you know, great tribulation, which we'll address in a moment. It's not a day of, of, of just that's negative. It's, a, it's an exciting day for you and I because it means that, that what God has ultimately promised will be coming to fruition. And so we should longingly await Christ's Return. There is a quote uh, from a book I read recently. It says, Do Christians, in fact, eagerly long for Christ's return? The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, the less they will long for His return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution, or who are elderly and infirm, uh, as well as those who daily walk with Christ is vital and deep, will have a more intense longing for his return. And so to some extent, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual conditions of our lives at the moment. It also gives us some measure of the degree to which we see the world as it really is, as God sees it in bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in the power of the evil one. And so that quote kind of says is that as we, again, talk about practical implications, we talk about the biblical truth that Jesus is returning again for a final day of judgment. Um, for us, we should, as Christians, who longingly await that. The, the extent to which we desire after his return um, is in some ways a direct correlation or measure of how deeply we are actually following Jesus. And the author kind of makes the point that, um, you know, that if we're following him well, then, then, then we want him to come back even more so. Um, but also points out that the, the, the temptation for many Christians or many people who claim Christianity that maybe don't actually know Christ is we accept the truth of Jesus' original coming and what he did for us, but then we kind of just say thank you and go right back to our former way of living. 
right, without recognizing the big picture of why he came. And it's not so that we could just have a good life here on this earth, but that ultimately, when he comes back again, we might be reunited with him once and for all. And so we should long for Christ's return. The second thing we see about Jesus' return, about the second coming, is that he is coming back at an unknown time. At an unknown time. Matthew 24, 44. This is why you are also uh, to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, 13. Therefore be alert, because you do not know either the day or the hour. Mark 13, 32 through 33. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. And so we know that He is coming, but we don't know when He's coming. And the simple, the simple practical application to that truth is that we longingly await Christ's return, yes, but we do so in active obedience. We do so in active obedience. Uh, and the reason why this is significant and important is because uh, we can't just accept it and then if we knew the exact day, we would do what I think every person in the world does, whether Christian or not, and we would just procrastinate, right? We would just say, well, I've got time, right? Or non-Christians, if they knew, they'd say, well, I'll just live according to the world until Christ returns. But it doesn't work that way. Um, because one, our heart shouldn't be geared that way anyway. We should be longing for Christ for the sake of longing for Christ, not for the sake of winning an award, which ultimately that award is to be with Christ anyway. And so if we don't want to be with Christ now, then a reward of being with Christ wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And so the not knowing forces us to stay ready, to stay prepared for the day that comes. And that doesn't mean that we just kind of sit down and, and twiddle our thumbs, so to speak. Um, because it could be tomorrow, but it also might be a thousand years. And so we actively wait. Where we continue to, to plan things in the future and, and, and plan our life as if we're being obedient to what we know now, all the while knowing that Christ could return at any moment. And so, so far, there's not generally much disagreement among believers in regards to the second coming of Christ. Uh, the disagreement often comes around or in, or in regards to the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. That's what I want to turn our attention to now. So far we know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back at a time that we don't yet know, ultimately for the sake of judging the nations, but the Bible also talks about events that surround this second coming. Uh, it teaches that certain events will take place prior to Jesus' returning, or some believe that these events might take place after his return, uh, but most believe they will take place prior. Um, I'll just run through the different things. One, the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Matthew 24, 14 says the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, implying that once the gospel has been preached to all the nations, then the end will come. Meaning that if he hasn't come yet, then the gospel must not have been preached to all the nations. Uh, the Great Tribulation, Mark chapter 13, verses 19 and 20. 
For those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now, and never will be again. If the Lord has not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But He cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom He chose. You also will see that false prophets working signs and wonders will precede Christ's return. Mark 13.22 For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead many astray, if possible, the elect. There will also be signs from heaven. Matthew 24 Verses 29-30 through 30. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Scripture also talks about a, uh, a man of lawlessness to precede Christ's return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. It also talks about the salvation of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, some people might add additional events to this they find in Scripture. Some people might look at some of these events and say that there's a, a small group of people, for example, that think the tribulation will happen after Christ returns. Uh, there's, there's lots of different schools of thought on what's included, what's not included. The point that I want to make is that there are events that Scripture talks about surrounding the second coming of Christ, most of which specifically refer to prior to His return. Um, and if, you know, if you think the way I think, the question you may have is, well, if there are specific events that are going to happen before Christ comes, and those events haven't happened yet, then I can know that Christ isn't coming right now. Um, which means that um, Christ isn't necessarily coming at any moment. And so there's a conflict there, right? Jesus, you know, the idea that Jesus can come at any moment versus the idea that Jesus can't come until these particular events have happened. Uh, so there's a few different schools of thought in regards to how those things can, can work together. What does it mean that Jesus can come at any moment? What does it mean that, that certain events have to happen prior to Jesus coming? And how can we, um, regardless of the specific events or the timeliness of the specific events, how can we uh, kind of rectify those seemingly conflict verses in Scripture? So first, for some say that Jesus, some try to kind of you know, mend that idea or solve that conflict by saying that Jesus can't really come at any moment, uh, which isn't really a good way to think about it because it contradicts many passages in Scriptures. For example, First Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Um, yeah, meaning at an hour, a day and an hour that, you, that we don't expect. That's um, a, a, a surprise, if you will. It's sudden. Meaning that if if he has to come at the, you know, the moment all these events have happened, um, to try to solve that by saying that, well, that must mean that Jesus can't come at any moment, is contrary to Scripture. Some also say that, that he can come at any moment because all the signs have already happened. 
Um, some people look at all these events and say, well, all those have happened. Uh, the problem with that is um, so many of them seems very obvious that they probably haven't happened. For example, Matthew 24, 14, that says that, um, that, that the gospel will go to all nations, right, and then the end will come. Well, we know that the gospel hasn't gone to all nations. Right? Or even the signs of heaven uh, that we read just a moment ago um, that says that the, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will far, fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will shake. Uh, it seems pretty clear that those events haven't happened either. And so to say uh, that, that he can come at any moment because they've already happened also doesn't seem to line up with Scripture. And so, so how then do we navigate those two conflicting ideas and uh, the best interpretation that I found or discernment that I found is to say it this way it is unlikely however possible that the signs have already happened right, meaning we recognize that, that there are things that appear like they haven't happened already um, but at the same time it is possible in which case it's possible that Jesus returns at any moment and here's the twofold encouragement that offers us is one, we may, here's the practical applications. One, we maintain an eager expectation and not knowing when Christ will come, right? Because they maybe could have already happened. Um, but at the same time, we maintain eager expectation when the resemblance of the signs are happening around us. Meaning that if, um, if we know that the events haven't happened and we start seeing those events unfold, they, they grow our eager expectation desire for Christ's return. And if you'll notice, almost all of those signs, really all of those signs, other than the advancement of the gospel, are, are negative. And that's why we often say things, or I often say things like, um, you know, Scripture is pretty clear that until Christ returns, things in this world are only going to get worse. Um, the, the, the wicked things that we see, the the, the, the sin that we see is only going to intensify um, as we wait for Christ's return. And so, to, to be able to say that, that maybe they've happened, but probably not, is then to give us encouragement that when we see the world getting bad around us, the encouragement it offers is to know that, that all of this is, is, is happening, is a fulfillment of the, the preceding prophecies for Christ's second coming. And so we can actually be encouraged by those things, not, not celebrating that sin is taking place in the world, but rather that the, prophecy, the prophesying of the events leading to the second coming are unfolding before our eyes, in which case Christ's return is imminent, the thing we long for most of all. And so we eagerly anticipate while readying ourselves, while, because we ultimately don't know when his return will be, Yet we're encouraged as the events seem to unfold ahead of us, ultimately not knowing the extent to which they will or won't happen or when and how they may or may not happen in our lifetime or the lifetimes of those ahead of us. And so that leads us then to another, those are, those are most of or many of the events surrounding the second coming that precede Christ's return, there is an additional event that Scripture talks about that um, most would believe happens after Christ's return, which would be what they call the thousand-year reign, Christ's thousand-year reign, or the millennium. And we get this idea from, primarily from Revelation chapter 20, 
verses 2 through 5, which says this. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, this is the only time this is really mentioned in Scripture. And again, I want to avoid getting too far into the rabbit trail of, of what exactly uh, the different schools of thought are. However, there are three primary schools of thought as to what these thousand years mean. Uh, there are certain people who, there are a belief called amillennialism, or if you believe in amillennialist, which means that uh, there is no future millennium, meaning that the current state of the church is living out the thousand years, and the thousand years is not necessarily a specific period of time, um, but rather symbolic of a long period of time, uh, meaning that this period is happening and then Christ will return. Uh, there are other, the other, people, or other people who believe uh, differently. Uh, you call them post-millennialists or post-millennialism. Uh, post meaning after, meaning that Christ will return after the millennium, meaning there will be a thousand-year period uh, where, again, the enemy will be, be removed, locked away. You'll see the advancement uh, of Christianity among the world uh, until Christ ultimately comes. Uh, which is the second most common of the interpretations. And then lastly, you have premillennialism, which is the belief that Christ will return before the millennium. This is the most uh, longly held belief as to what's meant by the thousand-year reign or the millennium. Um, and it's, the most old, or it's not only the oldest, but also the most believed, uh, mostly because of the way it says in verse, uh, verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ four thousand years meaning Christ comes and then with Christ reigns for a thousand years, meaning there's a state of the church now, Jesus returns after the events that we just described to then reign for a thousand years upon then reaching the day of judgment. And again, not going to dig too deeply into each one of those, but there is significant practical application, even as we think about something as confusing or disagreed upon among Christians as the millennium, which is this. Whenever and however Christ reigns on the earth during the end times is simply a tangible picture of what has always been and will always be true. Namely, that we must live today as if this future event is happening daily in our lives now. Meaning, when Christ comes to rule for the, the thousand years, Right. Ultimately, it is a tangible picture of the fact that Christ already rules supremely and totally over all of his creation. And for us, it's almost like the reverse of a foreshadowing, right? Like the fact that we know that that's going to happen almost works in reverse for us now in applying that reality to our life that Christ does reign and will always reign in our life. That will just be for all the world to see for that particular period of time prior to the final day of judgment. 
And so we turn then to the final judgment. We've talked about the fact that Christ is coming. Uh, we don't know exactly when He's coming, while also knowing that there are particular events that Scripture talks about that will take place um, prior to His coming. Uh, some will take place after His coming. Um, perhaps the millennium, perhaps the Great Tribulation. Um, but there will be events surrounding that ultimately lead us to, to, to submit to His Lordship over our life, to His rule and reign. But ultimately, all of this is leading and pointing to the fact that there will be a day of final judgment. And the first thing we need to know about this is that Jesus will judge the nations. Matthew 25, 31-32 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is one of my favorite passages found in Matthew chapter 25. It's, he's, he's giving this, this, this prophecy on the Mount of Olives, which um, is in the Old Testament, the mountain that they prophesy, they say Jesus will return on. And it says that when Jesus returns on this mountain, that when his feet touch down, literally the mountain will be split into two sides. Uh, one side will represent those who he ultimately judges for eternal death. The other that he separates will ultimately be reserved for those who have inherited eternal life. But that day of judgment is coming. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 say it this way. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up, and the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so this day of judgment is ultimately leading to a point of separating those who are found not guilty and those who are found guilty. The only way by which we are found not guilty is in Christ Jesus. And the reward that, that results from those two things is vastly different. Let me go ahead and invite the worship team to close. And I want to close, I want to read these scriptures and I want to paint this picture of what not only this sermon and what the second coming is all pointing to, but ultimately what, what all of life is pointing to. Right? Everything we do, every, everything is pointing to this particular day where there will be one of two particular outcomes, starting with the unrighteous receiving their reward into eternal hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. And they will go away into eternal punishment. Revelation 14, 9-11. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever 
and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. I don't know about you, church, but you know, in recent years, there have been new kind of schools of thought in terms of imagining hell. And all of them, every one, all it does is soften it. Uh, for example, there's this new common popular belief of hell that's called annihilationism, which basically is that those that go into hell will punish for a little bit, but then ultimately they'll be annihilated and they'll just cease to exist. In which case, it's not forever. Um, it's just to, to pay off the sin you owe. But that's not the picture that we see painted here. The hell that Scripture paints is one that is for eternity. And it is one in which we are conscious of the eternal punishment that we are experiencing. It does not end. And there are people now who that's what they're facing, that's what they're headed towards. But then on the flip side, for those that know Jesus, for those that are found righteous, which again, we're only found righteous by the blood of Christ. Nobody is found righteous on their own. So what do Christians and non-Christians have alike is that no one's righteous on their own doing. But by Christ's hand, by Christ's blood, our, our guilt can be removed. Our punishment can be paid. And we can be given the righteous reward that we don't deserve. That reward which is eternity with God. Conscious joy in Christ forever. Church, the reason why I think eternity is so important isn't, isn't so that we can try to, again, if you read through the book of Revelations, if you're like me, you'll wind up very confused. What's metaphorical? What's symbolic? What's literal? The timing? And I think more than anything, the point is to get us thinking about eternity. Right? That, that all of our decisions, all of our actions, everything we do are either pointing towards the reward that we've already been promised in Christ and pointing others towards that same reward, or it's pointing people away and even leading ourselves perhaps away, deceiving others and perhaps even deceiving ourselves. Church, this should just wreck our daily thought and our daily actions, pointing us to this day of eternity. We're going to close. But before we do, the, the, the practical application I want to leave us with, and this is something that, that Maddie and I have done pretty early on in our marriage in, in terms of trying to, to think about the eternal ramification of everything we do is that we talk about how we are, we're preparing one another for eternity. And we try to imagine, or I try to imagine for myself the day that, that, that she's gonna be standing before the Lord face to face with Jesus, either gonna hear, well done my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, you lawbreaker. Those are the only two options. And I can tell you what it's done for us, and this isn't just a marriage thing, this is a, all relationships, all actions, everything we do filtered through this lens. But what it does for us is when we're arguing or fighting, 
and we think, okay, in light of eternity, what significance does this right here hold? And usually, pretty quickly, it puts into perspective however silly the thing is that I was doing that was wrong to cause the argument. <laughs> but what would it look like if all of our relationships were filtered without a mind? Not just with the most intimate ones, but with our friends, with our neighbors, with those that we come into contact with that we know are lost and are heading for an eternity of God's wrath. Notice it didn't just say an eternity where you don't get the good reward, but an eternal eternity of God's wrath. I heard a, a student ask an apologist one day, point blank, do you think I'm going to hell because I don't believe in Jesus? Right? And the obvious blunt answer is yes. Um, but the apologist said it in a way that I thought was unique. He said, I don't think God's going to force you to go somewhere you don't want to go. Because ultimately it's in his presence. And we get to experience that now, here, in part. And we've been assured that there will be a day where we get to experience it in full. And there are people all around us that are yet to experience his presence. They don't yet know the joys found in the person of Jesus. And it's our opportunity to extend it. So what we're going to do is we're going to close. And I'm going to do the invitation that we always do. If you are not a Christian and you're realizing as you're hearing this, it's become clear to you that, that you are not headed to eternity with God because you don't yet know the person of Jesus and you haven't submitted your life to him. Let today be the day because we don't know when he's returning. And so there's no time to wait. But I invite you to respond if that's you. Or if you're here and you've just kind of accepted but never really pondered the, the reality of eternity and the way it influences every aspect of your life or should influence every aspect of your life, um, and you need to repent of that this morning and, and, and challenge yourself to live more accordingly, um, and let's do that together. And then lastly, if you're here and you're not a part of a church body, to walk through this with, to keep your mind on eternity alongside others, we invite you to formally join our church this morning as well. But regardless, we all must respond, um, and I encourage you to, to do so this morning. Let's pray.